The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Good morning, everyone. Would you please stand for the reading of the God's Word? We'll be in Hebrews 7, beginning at verse 20 and continuing through verse 28. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save those to the utmost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of God. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we we thank you so much for your holy word. We just want to pause and and be amazed that we have access to the very words of God this morning. I pray that you'd give us joy in, in the task of looking at those words. God, I just confess, uh, I, I'm feeling a little um, dreary today and a little numb, but I want to come here and look at your words with joy because I know that they change everything. I know that your spirit is alive and is applying these words to my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters here this morning. Give us joy as we gaze we think of the parable of the sower, and, and we're very aware that as your word is sown, there is an enemy who would want to snatch it away. And there are, there, there are circumstances in this fallen world that, that um, cause, it, cause your word to not take root in our lives. The troubles of this life, the cares of this world can make us not the right type of soil. So we ask by your spirit that you would remove those obstacles, that you would make us good, fertile soil this morning, that your word would land and would take root, bear a harvest. Pray this in Jesus' name. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that, you know, I'm all all about the free books. Um, And our friends at Desiring God Ministries have provided this book. So you can find them in the back. 
It's called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. You know, our, our series in Hebrews here is all about how Jesus is better, about the supremacy of Christ. And this book can be a real help for us as we're meditating on that. It has just um, simple reflections. Well, they're not simple. They're, they're profound reflections uh, on different passages in Scripture, and each one ends with a prayer. So if you're in a place, which I think we all get into this place now and then, where we, we feel like Jesus just becomes a little blurry to our, our spiritual eyes, and we just, we, we know we love him, but we, it's, it's not as sharp as it was at, at other times, and we need reminders, and we need to go back into his word and this book can be a tool just to help with that when it's hard. So please take it. Even if you're not a big reader, just take one. Keep it on your shelf. And um, on a rainy day, maybe you'll pick it up. So we are in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 28. You may have noticed that it starts a little bit awkwardly, saying, and it was not without an oath. Well, obviously there's a lot that came before that. Uh, we sort of divided up this section where the author of Hebrews is looking at Psalm 110 and applying that to Jesus and his priesthood. But we'll get into it together and see how it all applies. You know, I was thinking about how we live in a very anxiety-ridden culture. Have you noticed that? Um, you know, I think, I think every generation is deeply insecure in our society. I don't think... It's unique to any one generation. Uh, now, there are reasons we should be insecure, right? Obviously, um, sin. All of us, our lives are marred by the stain of evil in our thoughts and our deeds. And because of the corruption that's inherent to humanity, none of us have lived as we were made to. All of us have hurt ourselves and others and the world and um, if we don't like to think about that, we don't like to think about sin, then um, our insecurity may not be the sin itself like, like it probably should be, but our insecurity becomes more superficial. We try to cover over our problems, and then we become insecure about different things. And then we have to deal with those insecurities. So the silent generation, they, were just, they just tried to be stoic about it, you know? And then baby boomers, I think... A lot of times they would just try to sort of flaunt their success. See, I don't have anything to be insecure about. Generation X pretends that they don't care. Millennials have a number of coping mechanisms. And then, then Gen Z, um, you know, Gen Z uses beauty filters on social media. So, uh, of course, I'm just, I'm picking and choosing examples here. But we hide the problem of our insecurity in many ways and and even then when we can't hide it when it becomes apparent uh then we just kind of numb ourselves with substances or sex or entertainment but the question remains the same for all of us doesn't it the question the big question how can i know that i'm okay how can i know that i'm okay if we could truly know that we are okay before the judge of all then that not only takes away fear of the future, but it gives us confidence for life today. And we left off last Sunday with this stunning comment that through the priesthood of Jesus, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And we noted that a priest is a mediator who can go between humanity and the divine. But if you have the wrong priest, then you won't be elevated to the transcendent, at least not for very long. 
And today we're going to continue to gaze in amazement at the high priest whom God himself has provided to bridge the gap between a corrupted humanity and his holy presence. And we'll see that God, with an oath, made Jesus a better guarantor of our salvation, of our ultimate acceptance. And the text points out three evidences that Jesus is that guarantor. First, he can save to the uttermost because he continues forever. Second, he can advocate better than any other because Jesus is without sin. And third, because his appointment that we see in, in Psalm 110 came after the law, that shows that redemptive history was driving toward this priesthood. There's a trajectory. The Levitical priesthood wasn't enough. There's a trajectory that God placed in Scripture to point us to the final priest. So these verses start by highlighting an oath that God has made. Verse 20 says, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now the oath that it's quoting is from Psalm 110 verse 4 and last week's passage also looked at Psalm 110 but it was thinking about uh, the reference to Melchizedek there that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well today we're not going to think about Melchizedek anymore. We're going to think about how uh, it says the Lord has sworn. This is an oath. It's a solemn promise. And so that's something that we can bank on. Now, we don't think much about oaths these days, do we? Um, anywhere you go in public, you can hear um, promises, empty promises being made. Um, maybe with um, parents who are trying to get their kids to shut up. They just, you know, promise them something. Um, or you can think about, um, those, you know, a promise in the office, um, you know, to keep a matter private, and then two days later, it's the juicy gossip. Or you can consider promises made at the altar of marriage. In our culture where divorce has just kind of become normal. Think about an oath taken on the Bible by a politician. Talk is cheap in America. And so we forget that in most cultures across time, oaths have represented this incredible power of truthfulness. An oath shows that this person would rather be hurt themselves than to be found lying. And two weeks ago, Brett led us through the end of chapter 6, which was thinking about a different oath that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 22. And we were told that those blessings to the heirs of the promise are all the more certain because God, who just in his normal speech, God can't lie. So then, if God also gave a specific oath, well, then that reality is doubly sure. And here today we see a promise, an oath that's even behind that oath. So God can promise to Abraham, to us, to bless the family of faith because God the Father also made this oath that we're reading about today, this oath to God the Son, to make him a priest forever on our behalf. Because the Father's words to the Son are sealed with an oath, therefore we can be sure that we have the mediator we need to usher us into the promised blessings. Now, no other priest in the Bible is made so with an oath. So we see through this promise in Psalm 110 that God is, he's emphatically emphasizing to us, this is the final priest. This is the priest that you need. 
the inspired author here wants us to see that this oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's the main thought of this whole section. We see that in verse 22. That God's oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now we're going to talk about covenant a lot next week. But today we're just going to focus mostly on Jesus as guarantor of our salvation. We don't use that word guarantor very much. But I think we generally have an idea of what it means, right? It means that when two parties want to do a certain transaction, but maybe one or both of them, uh, there's a question about their ability to execute on that bargain. So a guarantor is brought in to provide assurance that one way or another, the conditions are going to be met. So why do we need a guarantor? Here we should probably step back and take a bird's eye view of what we've covered so far in, in the book of Hebrews. So after millennia of types and prophecies and foreshadowings in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And this means not only is the knowledge of God, not only is the participation in his glory all the more accessible to us, but it also means that the stakes are higher than they've ever been before. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And also, we've seen in the earlier chapters that the temptation to fall away from the living God is subtle and it's devious. And many people drift off course without even realizing they're doing so. And so it becomes possible for our hearts to become hardened to the point where it's impossible to restore us to the life that we once believed we had with God. So what can we do? How can we have any confidence especially when we're honest about our own sin. How can we be confident that we're okay? Can we can have hope and boldness for the future only as we cling to and trust in the promises of God, staying close to them, being changed by them and protected by them. And a big word for the formal relationship we have with God's promises is covenant, which we will read more about in chapter 8. One who stands in the middle as mediator and makes the covenant work is Jesus, the guarantor. So the question is, how can I really know that I'm okay with God? And the answer is Jesus. If he is the one advocate you hope in, you can be certain that God welcomes you into his presence. To realize what a better guarantor Jesus is, we're going to have to compare him and contrast him with other guarantors. So when we do that, the first thing we're going to notice is that Jesus is a better guarantor because he continues forever. He can save to the uttermost because he continues forever. Starting in verse 20, we read... Um, sorry, um, verse 22. Former... 23, I mean. <laughs> okay, really, it's verse 23. The, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this astounding privilege to draw near to God, this is what we're talking about. This is what every person needs. This is what every person is grasping for, whether they realize it or not, in various ways. And drawing near to the one true God, that's what is going to make us whole. That's what makes us safe forever. That's what makes us okay. 
and that concept of can we draw near to God, that's what's framing our passage. In ver- you see it both in verse 19 and verse 25. And Jesus is the only priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's how we have to draw near to God. He alone, Jesus, can do this, can guarantee our successful drawing near to God because he made purification for sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. So the right priest came with the right sacrifice. And now, we read, atonement having been made, Jesus continues the intercessory work of a priest. He keeps applying that once-for-all finished work on our behalf because, unfortunately, we're not sinless yet. He helps us in our weakness and amid temptation. He stands as our advocate. He sends grace for today. He answers our prayers for deliverance from evil. Now, the Jewish Christians who were first receiving this letter, they were tempted to go back to the synagogues and to just kind of blend in to escape persecution. But here, in this text, they're confronted with the fact that those Jewish priests that they're going to go back to, those were simply placeholders until the forever priest arrived. The Jewish priests could intercede as long as they lived, but a glaring shortcoming was that their ministries could only last as long as their mortal lives. So even if you had a great relationship with a priest and you had assurance from him that God received your sacrifices, well, how much confidence can you really have someone who's limited by the same curse of death that you're under? Now, the Jewish sacrificial system ended in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. But down through the ages, subsequent generations, even us today, we are still tempted to rely merely on the assurance given by mortal men. Some people mistakenly feel closer to God because they've been under the ministry of some famous or particularly gifted pope or priest or pastor. But these aren't that different from the priests of old in the line of Aaron. Earthly priests die. They transfer to different churches. They're busy and unable to meet your needs. They move to different states or they disqualify themselves. They don't remain forever. So you definitely should not base your hopes to be okay on the success of my efforts or my opinion of you, because in addition to all the other ways in which I'm not like Jesus, my ministry is going to have an end. I might get hit by a truck on the way home today, or I might grow senile and even forget who you are. I'm not the guarantor that you need. Now, Christian ministry is beautiful and necessary, right? God has appointed mortal people to point us to Jesus. But if we look at clergy or pastors on their own with their glaring limitations, there is just something a little sad and fading about all earthly mediators. Even the Beatles picked up on this. Father Mackenzie writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. Look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? Even the best of God's spokesmen on earth, they're just kind of like a, a lonely signpost on a long highway or kind of like a pillar that's being actively buried in the sands of time. Infinitely more reliable is our brilliant high priest. We read about him in Revelation chapter 1. He has a face like the sun shining in full strength and a voice like the roar of many waters. And he says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's the one you need to go to directly. As much as you may also be helped by a mortal man ministering in his name, make sure that your hope, your guarantee, isn't in what a pastor thinks of you, but Christ himself standing forever as your guarantee before God. And what does this ongoing ministry look like? When it, when it says that Jesus holds this priesthood permanently, what does it mean that he makes intercession for us? We get a glimpse of this in Luke 22, and this is just before the cross, and Jesus tells his disciple Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, then in the events that would unfold that week, we know that Peter did deny Jesus three times, denied that he even knew him. But even in the midst of that sin, his faith did not fail. He didn't prove to be a pretender like Judas. Instead, after the resurrection, a humbled Peter became a bold leader of the early church. In his time of testing, even with his failings, that wasn't the end of him. Why? Because Jesus had prayed for him. Similarly, in John 17, which many have called Jesus' high priestly prayer, he explicitly prays for all who would come to believe in him, including you and me. He prays, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Sanctify them in the truth. Keep them from the evil one. He has prayed this on earth, and he still prays that for you in heaven. And when we don't even rightly know what we need, he sends his spirit to help us in our weakness and to intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. So our high priest intercession, it should give us greater confidence to pray ourselves, knowing that we're not, our prayers are not falling on deaf ears. He is actively ministering for his people right now in heaven. And that means that not only will we one day draw near to dwell in the physical presence of God forever, but right now, we truly draw near in the heavenly places through our guarantor, Jesus, the forever priest. And verse 26 goes on to point out that he can advocate better than any other because he's without sin. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. When it says it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, it doesn't mean it was fitting because we somehow deserved it. No, we don't deserve such a savior. It means it's fitting because the situation of our separation from God demanded such a solution if it was going to have a solution at all. So he is fitting. He's the only fitting solution to our problem. We should also clarify what exactly is meant by these adjectives that then describe the fitting high priest. He's called holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Well, with the first four, obviously we're, we're getting the feeling that this is talking about the utter sinlessness of Jesus. He never compromised himself. He never acted against God's design for humanity. He never lacked love for God or for neighbor. His motives were never corrupt. He reflected that stark otherliness of God that we call holiness. But we might pause and ask about these words, unstained and separated from sinners. 
Was Jesus a big prude? Did he dash away when dirty words were spoken? Did he gasp in disgust when a mean drunk walked into the room? If we're not careful, we might picture Jesus like some naive or self-righteous people that we know. And nothing could be further from the truth. That would not be a very good mediator for sinners now, would it? The fact of the matter is, if you read the gospel accounts, the more flagrant the sinners, the more they seem to have been drawn to Jesus. He is repeatedly called a friend of prostitutes and extortioners. He really enjoyed the company of these people. He saw the core image of God underneath all of their masks of rebellion. And yet he, in his own decisions and actions, Jesus still was unstained and separated from sinners. So that combination of his loving presence and his perfect holiness, that's exactly what unnerved them so and made it impossible for these sinners to stay the same any longer. This quality of being fully present in the world and with worldly people, and yet infallibly not of this world's corruption himself, this is what qualifies him as the perfect priest, the only one able to represent us in the heavenly places. And that's exactly where he's gone, having been exalted through his resurrection and ascension to the throne room of God. So verse 27 tells us that he has no need like those high priests, like the the Jewish priests in the Old Testament times. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself He himself was the sacrifice without blemish. And he, as the priest offering that sacrifice, he also was without blemish. So before the priests under the Mosaic law could even offer sacrifices for sins, they themselves had to be ceremonially cleansed and consecrated because they had a sin problem. They had their own sin that they somehow had to to get around that problem before they could offer sacrifices. A meaningful sacrifice and you know we when you read your old testament you quickly see that the priests weren't necessarily holy they were supposed to be but scripture doesn't sugarcoat the fact that this system being part of the system didn't automatically make these priests men of purity some of them were idol worshipers thieves rapists some of them were so filthy that we have accounts of how god just put them to death but exodus 28 goes in great detail describing how the priest's clothes were to be made. Their clothes, to set them apart, had gold and and brilliant colored threads, and they had a breastplate and an ephod with precious stones, and this um, intricately checkered coat and robe and a turban. All this was meant to show us the priest's set-apartness, the holiness of this office that they occupied. But one scholar writes this. He says, The accounts of the high priest from the Old Testament remind me of a children's pageant. One child comes out as a sunflower, waving her to her parents from behind the cardboard outfit. Another comes out as the sun, still another as clouds, and then little cardboard raindrops. In the same manner, Exodus tells us about the holy garments worn by the high priest. They were, there was even a gold plate affixed to the high priest's turban that read, Holy to the Lord. Priest represented something that he very clearly could never be. That was why he needed the costume. 
We know that whether our priests and pastors today are set apart by collars that they wear or robes or designer suits or degrees or titles or publications or ceremonies, whatever it may be, we know that at their core they are not individuals that we should hope in to make us okay. They have no inherent holiness of their own from which they can advocate for you. They are merely forgiven sinners like you. At least we hope they're forgiven sinners, right? I mean, some of the scandals you read about, you wonder, does this person even grasp the grace of God or has experienced his mercy? Pastors are in danger of merely wearing costumes too. And while I'm confident that I have received God's mercy and by his grace, I hope that I am somewhat competent in encouraging you to look to Christ as well, I still want to say never, never mistake me for that holy mediator that you need. I am weak. I'm beset with my own sin. On any given Sunday morning, you know, before I get to this building, I've, um, I've been impatient with my boys. I've uh, been selfish toward my wife. I've had proud thoughts or I've been fearing people or circumstances instead of trusting God. So I'm, I'm not unstained. At some point, I will fail you if I haven't already. It's a fact. No imperfect person can be the guarantor that you need before God. Now, this, this need for perfect holiness in order to be able to represent a sinner before God, that also shows us the folly of trying to represent ourselves, right? There are a great many people in our culture who have a notion of the God of the Bible, and they, they say that they, they know about Jesus, but they've never actually dealt with him for themselves. They've never done business with Jesus to the point where their hope is in him as their mediator. And that's kind of like someone deciding to go to trial without a lawyer. You know, you see this occasionally, you know, in celebrity trials where there's, I'm going to represent myself, and they're competent, they're, they're confident that they can, you know, get the facts across or they even maybe think that they'll be eloquent. Um, but everyone watching knows differently, right? We know it's going to be a train wreck. We know that they're going to get the full fury of the law thrown against them because they didn't have the right representative. Have to approach God through and only through Jesus. It's not enough to believe that God exists. It's not enough to know about Jesus. You have to approach God only through Jesus, the righteous one who is your guarantee of God's mercy. Now this need, uh, this need for perfect holiness in order to represent a sinner, it also shows us the folly of hoping in saints, right? Some churches have taught that certain Christians before us have ended their course of life with an excess of righteousness that could somehow be applied to us as we pray to them. But do you see how this passage, and, and really the rest of the Bible, is contrary to that notion? Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely, not by our own works of righteousness in this life, but freely as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He's the only one God put forward as a guarantor. 1 Timothy 2 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator. The song we sang earlier. There is one mediator between God and man. 
man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all at the proper time. So don't trust in a mere servant of Christ, whether living or dead, to give ongoing gifts of blessing to your credit. Look to Jesus alone as the one priest pure enough to make final satisfaction on your behalf and take comfort in the fact that his once for all sacrifice of himself was sufficient to bring you to God. It's done. So Jesus is our fitting high priest because his priesthood is unending. Because he is without sin. And lastly, verse 28 shows us his priesthood is final in sequence. This is taking us back to the first paragraph of Hebrews, which showed us that there are two epochs to time. This is, I mean, quite literally, we should see history like this. There's B.C., before Christ, and there's Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Because the dawning of his priesthood, it changed everything. And it still changes everything. So what the author of Hebrews wants us to see in Psalm 110, verse 4, is that since this priest in the order of Melchizedek was announced after the giving of the Mosaic law, it shows that redemptive history was always driving toward this final priesthood. Verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So it's, it's not as though God's plan failed. Okay, you need to know that. Some people have this view of scripture where it's like, well, there was the old plan, that didn't work out so well, so let's bring in Jesus. No, the temporal imperfect priesthood was always meant to give way to the permanent and the perfect. So follow that trajectory as you read your Bibles. Let these lesser kings and prophets and priests lead you to the final one. And then let all derivative priestly figures and pastors point you back to that final guarantor of your acceptance by God. It's terribly tragic when we skip the guarantor that God has provided and instead we latch on to just a shadowy priest. I know an older couple who are not true Christians and um, they scoff whenever people speak of the good news because they're quite comfortable living for themselves and trusting in their own goodness in order to gain acceptance by God. And they would go to church fairly regularly, but it was a church that preaches a lot of moralism and just kind of social do-goodery. You know, it's, a, it's one of those places where Jesus is offered more as a, a good example rather than as the one necessary rescuer and redeemer. Well, the church had some sort of special function, and then afterward, this couple stayed behind, and um, for a long time, they helped to stack up chairs and fold up the tables, and the pastor was grateful for this extra help. And he foolishly, though I hope, I hope jokingly, told them that they were now going to have extra treasure in heaven. To them, though, it wasn't a joke. They, they kind of latched onto that concept. And I felt like crying when I heard that they delighted in those words and they were energetically repeating the story of that conversation with their family and their friends. See, they were looking for a guarantee. We all are looking for a guarantee that they were okay. They weren't looking to the guarantor that God has provided. Is there anyone or any status or any measurement that you're clinging to to provide assurance that you're okay? It may even be someone speaking in Jesus' name, speaking true things. 
But if it's not the finished work of Jesus himself that you're trusting in, then the kindness of that lesser priest won't do you any good. God has promised with an oath. If you look to Jesus, he can guarantee your acceptance by the only court of opinion that matters. And this concept of needing to find our assurance in Jesus' priesthood alone, it's so important that the prolific song leader, Charles Wesley, wrote a hymn from this passage back in 1742. So I want to read those lyrics because this is exactly how every true Christian should feel and respond to Hebrews chapter 7. It says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off the guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba Father, cry. Arise, 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 my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. Do you have any guilty fears? Do you sometimes wonder, can I really be forgiven and accepted? Hebrews 7 shows us that God the Father doesn't look on us with hostility and and kind of only begrudgingly allow Jesus' advocacy. No, God the Father sent Jesus for this very purpose. He went out of his way to make known his oath to the Son about the role that he would have as guarantor for us. Because God swore that Jesus would be a priest forever. Therefore, we can be certain of the benefits of God's promises that they will reach their intended recipients. So look on Jesus in faith. Be certain that you're okay. Lord, we pray, first of all, for any here today who aren't sure that they've placed their faith in Jesus instead of just knowing about him. And I pray that they would not leave this building without having someone pray with them and to talk through that with them. They would come to you, the one guarantor of their acceptance. Lord, for the rest of us who probably need to shake off some guilty fears, cause us to remember that we have our surety in this great high priest. Let these realities bring great confidence and comfort and joy and courage. Pray that not only for this week, but for every week. In Christ's name we pray.